Romans 15, verses 1 through 13. We who are strong in faith should help the weak with their weaknesses and not please only ourselves. Let each of us please our neighbors for their good to help them be stronger in faith. Even Christ did not live to please himself. It was, as the scripture said, when people insult you, it hurts me. Everything that was written in the past was written to teach us. The scriptures give us patience and encouragement so that we can have hope. Patience and encouragement come from God. And I pray that God will help you all agree with each other the way Jesus Christ wants. Then you will all be joined together and you will give glory to God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Christ accepted you so that you should accept each other, which will bring glory to God. I tell you that Christ became a servant of the Jews to show that God's promises to the Jewish ancestors are true. And he also did this to those who are not Jews, who give glory to God for the mercy he gives to them. It is written in the scriptures, so I will praise you among the non-Jewish people. I will sing praises to your name. The scripture also says, be happy, you who are not Jews, together with his people. Again, the scriptures say, all who are not Jews, praise the Lord. All you people sing praises to him. And Isaiah says, a new king will come from the family of Jesse. He will come to rule over the non-Jewish people, and they will have hope because of him. I pray that the God who gives you hope will fill you with much joy and peace while you trust in him. Then your hope will overflow with the power of the Holy Spirit. Thank you, Scott. Now, our speaker today really needs no introduction to Kensington Temple. He's a long-standing friend of Kensington Temple, all the way from Atlanta, Georgia. Whenever he is passing through town, which is at least once a year, we receive him here as a home away from home. Dr. Michael Youssef is the founder and director of Leading the Way Ministries, which is a ministry alongside the church that he leads in Atlanta, Georgia. He is the man who initiated the Kingdom Sat television program station and has hosted me on that for many, many years. He's a great friend of all of us, and I want you to give him one more time a very great welcome back to Kensington Temple. Thank you, my dear brother Colin. This is home away from home for me. Now that I've been coming here every year since 2004, and I really do, my wife will tell you, I see this is my second home. I'm so privileged and honored to uh, be with you again and uh, so thankful for the opportunity that my dear friend Colin Dye has afforded me. I shared with the nine o'clock congregation, and those of you who've heard me before say this, he, when God gave me the vision for Malakot Sat, an Arabic channel, 24-7, 160 million homes in the Arab world, it was impossible at the time. It was 2004. I was preaching in the Middle East, and God laid it on my heart. One channel, dedicated, evangelism, apologetic, gospel, discipleship. And so, one of the very first people that God laid on my heart to invite to be on that channel was Colin Dye. And he has had a remarkable ministry, and I pray they continue to have that remarkable ministry throughout the Arab world. And I, I pray to God that all the opportunities that are opening up, and all the people they asked me when I'm in the Middle East, they said, you know your British friend, your British friend? I said, Colin Dye. <laughs> That's his name. <laughs> but I'm so honored that 
be called his friend. And I had the privilege of meeting Simon this morning. I'm just uh, so honored to meet you. And I pray for you that God will take you from glory to glory. Amen? Amen. Amen. Your best years are ahead. Father, in the name of Jesus, you know my heart, but I confess it publicly that without the power of the Holy Spirit, I will give you people a big headache. And so I pray that you would not allow me to speak a word of my own, but to say that which you have laid on my heart through the power of your Holy Spirit and the Word of God that is authored by your Holy Spirit. And so that your people be encouraged, motivated, and renewed afresh. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. As always, I go to the Lord in prayer when the invitation came, what would God lay on my heart? And he laid that passage, keep it in front of you. Um, I'm going to come to it in a minute. My congregation say Michael has long introductions, but he always gets to the sermon. (laughs) I always get to the sermon. But I want to begin by telling you that happened that my wife and I, who have met 50 years ago, been married 48 years, we began to look at the passage in the Scripture, the promise of Jesus in the Scripture, that when two of you agree on something, that God will grant it from heaven. I looked at it sideways, upside down. I looked at other people's interpretation of it. And I realized that it is not a name it and claim it promise, but it is he names it, I claim it promise. It's a promise when it is rightly claimed, and as I say, rightly as verse wrongly claimed. God can answer prayer in abundance. My wife and I can testify to you that when my children, our children were young, we were blessed with four kids and ten grandchildren. But when our children were young and and, and going through the teen years and the college years and so on, and and, and problems would arise and and issues, spiritual welfare in their lives and or even in our own lives, that we would come together in agreement and say, God, we don't know everything about the meaning of that verse, but we, we believe it. And we saw God answer some prayers immediately. Sometimes it took his sweet times, as he always does. (laughs) But many times he answered us immediately from heaven. Here's the verse. Here's the promise. Again, I tell you. So remember when it says again, that means there's something else before that. Again, I tell you that if two of you on earth agree about anything you ask for, it will be done for you by my Father in heaven. So what is the wrong way of claiming that promise? Well... Let me give you some examples. The wrong way of understanding this promise is when you think it's a blank check. That God said, hey, here's a blank check. Just write the amount, and it's all yours. That's the wrong way. Uh, Ask God for anything, no matter whether it's good or bad. Just ask him, get two people, two knuckleheads together, and come in agreement, and, and God says, okay, I'll do it. Or... The wrong understanding of this is you think that God somehow is bound to obey us. And therefore, we tell God what to do and God obeys our orders. (laughs) This interpretation tantamount to magic. That's not what the promise is all about. That God is automatically bound to grant us any foolish request, any sinful request. No, 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 no. That simply two people ask for something, God gives it. The wrong understanding of this important promise 
is the importance of unity in the Holy Spirit. And without understanding the unity in the Holy Spirit, this can be dangerous. In fact, it can be inconsistent with the rest of the Scripture. So I'm going to spend a little time this morning, before I get to the verse, the verses of 1 Corinthians 15, I want to put that in context. Chapter 18 of Matthew, verse 19. 18, 19 of Matthew. The Lord Jesus has already quoted. What is he talking about here? He is talking about the unity in confessing of our sin. It's a unity of experiencing his promise of forgiveness when sin is genuinely confessed. Unity that results from aligning my will with the will of God instead of wanting God to align his will with my will. (laughs) Unity that results from seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. He said, when you do that, all these things, what are the things? Your needs. And God knows all, all of our needs. He said, all these things will be added. This will be the icing on the cake when you first focus on the glory of Jesus. Unity that results from willingness to be in total obedience. Unity that results from selflessness and self-surrender. It's a unity that results from total emptying of oneself and allowing the Holy Spirit to fill every part of us. This is a unity that has to exist for anyone before they begin to come in agreement over the will of God in their life. Well, the apostle Peter, who heard Jesus actually pronounce these words, he heard them with his own ear. He goes in his first epistle, chapter 3, particularly the first seven verses, he takes, that, he takes that promise and he applies it to the relationship between husband and wife. I have seen in more than 48 years in the ordained ministry, divisions in a home between husband and wife as a result of selfishness. Listen, you dig deep, you dig deep, and you dig deep. It's like onion. You keep going, you keep going, and you're going to get to the core. The problem is self-centeredness. No one wants to sacrifice their will. And so... In verse 7 of 1 first, of Peter chapter 3, he gives us a clue as to that unity between husband and wife will do. He said in that last part of verse 7, he said, without that selfless unity, your prayers will be hindered. Conversely, or the opposite is true, when you exercise selfless unity in marriage, your prayer will be answered. Can I get an amen? Amen. This is the understanding of what Paul is saying in 1 Corinthians 15 that I want you to turn to. Because you cannot study the scripture at any length of time without seeing how much God loves and God blesses. The unity, the selfless unity Because he himself is honored when you do that. And our salvation is one of the overarching basis to that unity. Our sharing of eternal life. We're going to be spending eternity together. That should affect our shared unity here on earth. The Holy Spirit 
inspired David 1,000 years before Christ in Psalm 133, verse 1. How beautiful, how unspeakable, how indescribable, how pleasant it is when the brethren or sisters dwell together in unity. Jesus himself said in John chapter 10, verse 16, he's talking about the fact while all his disciples at that time were Jewish, he says, I have other disciples, other flock that from another fold, that is from the Gentile fold, the non-Jewish fold. And he said, when they are together and they will come together in unity, they will hear my voice. He said, I have other sheep, which is not from this fold, talking about the Gentiles. They shall hear my voice and they shall become one flock, one shepherd. That's unity. One of the great joys of my life is when I go and preach in Messianic congregations. I had that joy last September in Israel, in Jerusalem, the oldest Messianic congregation. been there since the 50s, many, many, many more now. But I had that joy of preaching to that congregation, and I do this on a regular basis. The unity that God brings between believers, regardless of their background and, 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 and the traditions and all that, but when they're united in Christ, God blesses to other pastors, all three of us, pastor big churches in Atlanta. We come together on a regular basis for 30 years now, holding each other accountable, pray for unity, and God blessed all our three congregations. You see, that is the selfless unity that God, that the Word of God is telling us today. Whether it be in marriage between a husband and wife, in the home with the whole family, in the cell groups, in the Sunday school classes, or in the church at large. Selfless unity. And the special blessing that God pronounces on selfless unity. Sadly, at least I know the United States. I can't speak for Britain. I don't know Britain. I thank God for this church. This is unique. I hope you realize that this is a unique church. I hope you realize that. But in the States, we have so many goats who have gone into the churches and pretended to be sheep. That as soon as they go, ah, you recognize them. But they go in, and because they're not sheep, they create division. They pretend to be sheep, but they're not. And that is why, you see, congregations are divided and fighting and fighting and fighting each other. In Acts chapter 4, when the Holy Spirit began to work, when the Holy Spirit poured His power into the disciples, it was because they obeyed Jesus and they were in one accord. It's part of the blessing. This should be an example to all of us. As I said, whether it be cell groups, Sunday school classes, or the church at large. Listen to what Paul said to the Ephesians in chapter 4, verses 2 and 3. Be completely humble and gentle and patient, bearing with one another in love, making every effort, and here it comes, keeping the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. You see, the bond of peace does not come. Homes, no peace unless there's unity. Churches, no peace unless there's unity. And in the last 32 years, that's the history of my church, that God truly gave me the great honor to birth with a handful of people. For 32 years, we celebrated 32 years last May. 
And from day one to this day, I have never ceased to remind them. Every single meeting, every single business meeting, every single elders meeting, that each of us, each of them, have wonderful ideas. I have some wonderful ideas. I'm not just, you know, bragging, but my ideas will be as good as theirs. <laughs> and theirs is maybe better than mine. But when it comes to the work of God, it is not our ideas or our opinion that he's interested in, that we're interested in. We are interested in the mind of the Holy Spirit. Consequently, our monthly business meetings, we spend half of the time in our knees praying, and then the rest, the rest of it take place in less than half the time. God is honored when we humble ourselves before him. Uh, when it comes to the work of God, God wants us to seek. What is the mind of the Spirit? And he'll give it to us when we ask. Listen to what Paul said to the fractious, individualistic group of believers in Corinth. Chapter 1, verse 10. I appeal to you, brethren, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you, not some of you, all of you, how many? All of you agree with one another so that there may be no division among you and that you may be in perfect unity in mind and thought. Think about that. Now, my beloved friends, I came all the way from Atlanta to tell you that there is a blessing all its own in self selfless unity. There is an answer to prayer all its own in selfless unity. I was thinking about this and the necessity of selfless unity and the blessing in Witherby Home or the church. And I thought a story a friend of mine told me years ago. I don't know how true it is, but here's what he said. He said, you know, thoroughbred horses, when they're facing an enemy, they go into a circle formation. Their heads facing each other. The hindsight in the back. And with their hind legs, they kick the enemy. The donkeys, on the other hand, when they're facing an enemy, they go into a circle formation. Their backsides to each other, their heads on the outside, and they kick each other. So you have to decide whether you're a thoroughbred or a donkey. I'll leave that with you. Think about it over lunch. Here's the question. How do we go about practicing that selfless unity. You see, I can come here and give you a theory, and you say, well, that's nice. That's a nice challenge. But how do I go about it? How do I do that at home? How do I do this with my wife or with the husband, my children? And how do I do this in the church of Jesus Christ with my small groups? Well, I want to give you six characteristics to selfless unity. Are you ready for it? Actually, I got the first congregation memorizing at 9 o'clock. I hope you will too. Here we go. All right. Number one. And they all, by the way, go verse one, verse two, verse three, verse four, five, six. Six principles in six verses. The first principle in verse one, he said, put others up. Number two, he said, put yourself down. Three, put Christ before you, always. Four, put yourself under the word of God. Five, put yourself under 
the power of God. And finally, put the glory of God above all else in your life. You ready for those? And you ready to memorize? Let's go for it. Then, of course, verses 7 to 13 is a song. He burst into a song of all the promises of God in the scripture of how the praise both the Gentiles and Jews are going to praise God for fulfillment of his promises. Look at verse 1, first of all. We who are strong ought to bear with the failings and the weakness of the weak. The word ought means that we are under obligation. Uh, it is not take it or leave it. It is not a smorgasbord, or we call buffet, where you come and you select what you want and leave what you, want, you don't want. Now, there are some people do that with the scripture. Here, when it says we ought, all of us under that obligation. Uh, I have a confession to make. I find myself sometimes much harder on the mature believers than on the ones who are struggling in their spiritual walk. I really do. But even being sympathetic with the spiritually weak does not mean that I or any spiritually mature person approve or acquiesce to those weaknesses, to those sins, and to those areas of struggle. Instead, the strong should offer to help the weak. How? By carrying the burdens of, the weak, of those who are weak and carrying that burden and, 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 and to literally, literally spend time listening to them in order to help them be liberated and freed in Christ. We have a young man who gave public testimony who was struggling in a certain sin. And he went to one of the elders and one of the elders basically said only one very simple thing. I said, well, this man is smarter than me. I spend hours counseling people. This guy said to me, don't identify yourself with your sin." Identify yourself with Christ. That gave him victory. He's still walking in victory two years later. You see, carrying the burdens of the weak, strengthening the weak, without necessarily acquiescing or agreeing with them. Uh, but instead, sometimes the, the stronger Christians are constantly criticizing and nitpicking and, 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 and condescending with those who are weak. But that stops the unity from happening. But rather, the strong listens patiently without agreeing with that person and gently redirect the line of thought. The idea here is this. Listen carefully. The strong must show a genuine love and appreciation for the weak believer without necessarily arguing over the non-essential things. If they're not necessary for salvation, my congregation will tell you, if you turn them around in the middle of the night, they'll say, yeah, Michael says, major on the majors and minor on the minors. If it is not necessary for salvation, we have no sacred cow. But when it comes to the truth of the gospel, it's a hill that we're all ready to die for. I can testify to you that in the honor of my wife who's here, she really does a better job than I do. I learned from her through the years. You see, I came to marriage 48 years ago with a whole lot of baggage. I grew up in a legalistic environment. And you know what I mean by legalism? You understand? I mean, for a long time, until I was in my late teens, I used to think that thou shalt not drink, thou shalt not smoke, thou shalt not play cards, thou shalt not dance. It's in the commandments. Until I said, that's not in the Bible. They're bad for you. 
But I used to think those in the commandments. My preacher used to say, the cinema. <laughs> what would you do if Jesus returns and you are in the cinema? <laughs> to this day. I'm afraid that Jesus is going to come back before the, I see the ending of the movie. <laughs> I don't go very much, but still left an indelible mark on it. But she genuinely pointed me that there are other ways to understand and to be able to see things and not be legalistic. Major on the major. Say it with me. Major and minor on. Do you have majors and minors in colleges or universities? Yeah, majors. In no way here, the Apostle Paul is saying that we need to compromise the truth of the gospel. Never. In no way is he encouraging us to undermine the infallible, inspired word of God. In no way he's encouraging us to undermine biblical morality. No. He's still speaking in the context of things that do not matter for salvation, as he does in chapter 14. Read it when you go home. So the first thing he says in verse 1, put others where? Oh, come on now. The 9 o'clock congregation didn't have coffee like you had. <laughs> but they were right there. So let me ask you again. Put others where? Ah. Secondly, verse 2, put self down. Each of us should please his neighbor for his good to build him up. How do I use my Christian liberty and freedom in dealing with others? Contrary to what you might think, it involves self-sacrifice. We may have to forego certain liberties ourselves. Even we are free in Christ. Paul said, I can do all things, but not all things are appropriate. We may have uh, to give up certain foods if we have to, or drinking certain liquids if we have to. In any exercise of our liberty in Christ, if our actions are going to cause somebody to stumble, cause somebody to sin, or cause somebody to uh, fail, we give it up. It's not important, no matter how badly you want it. Now, God does not give us our freedom, our liberty for us. He gives us liberty and freedom. First of all, he gives us freedom not to sin. Then he gives us freedom so that we may bless others. In Philippians 2.21, you can see it, how the Apostle Paul was grieving over mature Christians, the Christian leaders in the church. These were people of influence in that church, and yet they were thinking of themselves. They and their opinion must carry the day. They were not teaching wrong doctrine. They were not uh, living immoral lifestyles. But their primary motivation was, number one is me, and therefore everybody else must listen to me. Putting others where? Putting self where? Thirdly, put Christ before you always. You know... When you get to 71, you basically don't worry about what people think of you. <laughs> and in fact, I find that when I testify publicly about weaknesses that I may have, 
It, it blesses people, and that's fine, as long as God gets the glory. And I'm testifying to you. I'm confessing to you and before heaven, and God and my wife know this. Every time, and I've done it a few times, but every time I take my eyes off of Jesus, I fail miserably. I really do. Every time I take my eyes off of Jesus, even if I put my eyes on good people, even if I put my eyes on good things, even if I put my eyes on the ministry, there's nothing wrong with that. But I fail every time when I take my eyes off of Jesus. Listen, I remember when I was a young Christian, the age of 17, 18, I was discipled by an illiterate man. This is the most amazing story. He used to be a domestic uh, in, 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 in our area. And, but, but God laid it on his heart that he wanted to disciple me. And I, am so, I remember some stuff that he taught me better than some of the theologians. This man, here's the amazing thing. Now, could not read. If you, if you put a, a book in front of him, he could not read. But if you put the Bible in front of him, he would read it. The boys in my neighborhood would, would joke and put a, the headlines of the newspapers, big letters. He cannot make head or tail of them. He opened the scripture. He could read it. It's the most amazing thing. And I, was, I feel honored that this guy discipled me. One of the things he said to me, he said, Master Michael, he said, if you ever want to stumble, if you ever want to fail, keep your eyes on church leaders. Yeah. He said, they'll cause you stone. Another thing he taught me, even in those early days, he said, you need to remember that God in heaven is not sitting down with a pencil and an eraser. And every time you repent, he writes your name in the book of life with a pencil. And every time you blow it, he erases it. Then when you repent, he writes it again. Then when you fail, he erases it again. He said, that's crazy. He wrote your name in the book of life with the blood of Jesus Christ. Amen. And nobody can take that away from you. And so verse 3. For even Christ did not please himself. But as it is written, the insult of those who insult you have fallen on me. If you place your eyes on Jesus, you will soon discover that while he was fully God, he gave up the splendor of heaven uh, and the majesty. Uh, while he is fully God, he became a servant. While he's fully God, he fully obeyed the Father. Had Jesus sought to please himself and not the Father, uh, he would not have divested himself of the splendor of his glory. But the Bible said he did not consider that to be something to be grasped something to grab hold of and never let go, but he let it go. In his humanity, he wanted the cup to pass. He cried in Gethsemane. I was sharing with a group of people in Israel back in September, sitting in the Garden of Gethsemane, and I was trying to read the passage, and I just kept falling apart, and I couldn't read it, and I kept weeping and, and just thinking about Jesus. Weeping and, and the sweating blood. He said, if there's some other way, that you can take this cup from me. But in the end, it's your will, not mine. 
He said, I did not come from heaven to do my will. I came to do the will of the Father. Think about this. I want you to think about this. When you attempted, when you attempted to think, I am tired of serving. I'm tired of serving my family. I'm tired of serving my church. I'm tired of serving other believers. I'm just tired of giving of myself. I want a break. Think of Jesus. Keep your eyes on Jesus. Keep your eyes on Jesus means that you are willing to bear any cost. That you're willing to accept misunderstanding, ridicule, slander, deprivation, persecution, or even death. I tell people all the time, it's a lot easier to die for Jesus than to live for Jesus. You know why? Because living for Jesus requires us to die to self every single day. A little bit of time. Put others where? Now I'm testing you now. Put others where? Put self where? Put Christ before you. Put yourself under the word of God. Verse 4. Now, again, I don't know about Britain. I know about this church. And I thank God that this is a word and spirit church. I know that. But we have a movement in the evangelical churches in America today. A movement that if I think about very long, I'll be sitting here weeping because it's a very sad movement and invading the megachurches. It is fashionable to stand in judgment on the Word of God. You don't like that part about Jonah? Take it out. You don't like this part about Noah and the flood? Take it out. It's so fashionable. It's, 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 It's so depressing except to make me think that maybe we'll get close to the end. We're coming at the end time. Remember when Jesus talks about the love of many who grow cold just before his return? He asked in Luke 18, he said, when the Son of Man, got, when the Son of Man returns, will he find faith on the earth? It's going to be so bad. So I, I, that's the only hope I have, but I do pray for my brothers and my sisters who are misguided of thinking that we have authority over the Word of God, that we judge the Word of God. There's a a British theologian who's actually more popular in America with the young pastors, maybe even than in England. And he said, we must distinguish between what the Apostle Paul said as an apostle of the church and as when when he speaks as a Jewish rabbi. Good grief. Who's going to make that decision? Hello. Who's going to stand in judgment? How foolish that we stand in judgment on the word of God. That we decide what we like and what we don't like. We decide what is acceptable and what's not acceptable in this 21st century. That we decide what parts of the Bible are relevant and what are not. Look at verse 4. For everything, say that with me. For everything that was written in the passage, talking about the Old Testament, was written to teach us. So that through endurance, encouragement of the scripture, we might have hope. He's talking about the Old Testament. As I told you, this fashionable sermons after sermons are coming out, creating problems, at least in the States. It says we must ditch the Old Testament, that we must be unhitched from the Old Testament because they're no longer relevant for today. And I say a million no's. Absolutely not. 
Paul said it was given to us. It is written and it's preserved for us so that may be a warning for us. We need to be warned. Look what God did with the apple of his eyes. He ended up allowing them to go into exile because they continuously decided to live in disobedience. We need to be forewarned of that. See, sometimes I think of the church today, I think of the two guys who are trying to move a fridge. One was from one end and one from the other. And they kept pushing and shoving and pushing and shoving. They were sweating and they were tired, they were exhausted. And finally, the one on the inside said, we will never get this fridge out of the door. And the one on the other side, he said, was absolutely exercised. He said, out of the door, we're pushing it in the door. That's what's happening. And that is why you are fortunate to be in a church that sits under the Word of God. Under the Word of God. And that's what he's saying here. Sit under the Word of God, not above it, not in judgment of it. And Paul is saying, even the parts of the Old Testament about the ceremonial requirements, which are no longer applicable in the New Testament, even they are valuable. Even they are important from us, for us to learn from about the character of God, to learn about the ways of God, to learn about how God works and, 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 the, and, and how God exercises uh, in his relationship with his people, to understand the mind of God. And all of that helps us to persevere. Helps us to persevere. How many of you want to persevere today? I know it's not, it's not easy. All of this helps us to encourage us to be patient. All of this empowers us to bear fruit. In fact, without unity of the Spirit, I don't know. I've never seen anybody who's truly fruitful in their work of the ministry without the selfless unity. All of this helps us being anchored in the Word of God. Now I've got to confess to you that I have been reading the Bible through, I've of course studied the Scripture, but in addition to my study for teaching, I decided 30 years ago I need discipline in my life. I am, without discipline, I'm really a big mess. So I create discipline. I had, for 30 years, two other pastors and I held each other accountable and prayed with each other in the church, as I already told you. And so I need discipline. So I found this book, the Bible, called The Daily Chronological Bible 30 years ago, and I began. I got January 1, December 31. It goes day by day by day. And as I go through the Scripture for, for a whole year, there are parts when I come to them, I groan. I groan. I come to the book of Job and I groan. Oh, Lord, have mercy. And yet Job's endurance motivates me to endure. Job's patience, and Job's, Job's patience encourages me to be patient. Job's waiting for God's timing helps me to wait on God's timing, not my own, because my own is always the wrong one. And I look back in all the 50 years, two years I've been walking with the Lord, and I thank Him every day for some things, prayers that He did not answer, because they would have been certain death. His timing is always perfect. Or when I come to the passage about all the different offerings, sin offering, drink offering, and I'm groaning, I said, oh, I'll get them all mixed up. 
And then I look up to heaven and said, thanks be to God that I live in the 21st century first in the New Testament. But thanks be to God that Jesus Christ on the cross took all of those offerings together, offered them to the Father on my behalf. Put others where? Put self where? Put Christ before you. Put yourself under? Fifthly, put yourself under the power of God. Look at verse 5. Here's the amazing, the amazing, amazing truth. And my wife hears me talk about this all the time when I'm alone or with friends, and I just find it to be overwhelming. I've been walking with the Lord since 1964. I never cease to be overwhelmed of this truth. Listen carefully, please. God empowers me to do what he calls me to do. And after he does that, he says, well done, good and faithful servant. Lord, well, without you, I could never have done that. Well, what credit is it due to me? That's how gracious our God is. How wonderful our God is. May God, Romans 15, verse 5, look at verse 5. May the God who gives us endurance and encouragement gives you a spirit of unity. Here it is again. A spirit of unity among yourselves as you follow Jesus Christ. He's saying that our unity with one another, our patience with one another, our perseverance with one another uh, can only be accomplished by God's power. You can do it on your own. Let me tell you something. If you try, I hate to discourage you, you'll fail. I know because I have tried it and failed. But without the power of God, is impossible. But once you come to him and say, God, I can't do this. God says, good. Now we can talk. Because with me, you can do all things. With my power, you can do all things. Put others where? Put self where? Put Christ before you. Put yourself under his Put yourself, put yourself under his power. And sixthly, put God's glory above all. Above all. Beloved, I tested, as so many of you, this promise of Jesus. When you seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, all these things will be added to you. All of your needs are going to provide it for. Sometimes you, even your wants he gives you. Isn't that an amazing God we have? So that with one heart, one mouth, we may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. See, all for his glory. And then in verses 7 to 13, he basically, as I said, he sings the songs made up of promises of God in the Old Testament, particularly from the book of Isaiah. And thank God for the fulfillment of those prophecies. Now, I began by telling you about the blessings of selfless unity in prayer. I began by telling you that the answer to godly prayer stems from selfless unity. And Paul said, the consummate purpose of that selfless unity, not wanting your way, he wanting his way, everybody wants their way, but submitting to one another. The consummate. Of course, he said, is to please others, to help others, to bless others. 
But the consummate purpose for that selfless unity is to please who? The Lord. When there is a selfless unity over the glory of God, watch out. Just watch out. Watch out in your home. Watch out in your workplace even. Watch out in your church. Watch out how God answers prayers that you have probably prayed for for years. All of a sudden, God begins to answer. And His power begins to be manifested in you. And your testimony. You don't have to pull people by the lapel and say, believe in Jesus. They will say, hey, tell me about your Jesus. You notice in the book of Revelation, I'm coming close to the end. In the book of Revelation, if you read carefully, there are not any soloists there. I love soloists. I think it's great. But in the book of Revelation, no soloists. All, everybody sing together. Every time there's a song sung, they all sung it together. The 24 elders, they cast their crowns at the feet of Jesus and they sang with the angels. Uh, every living creature joined in singing. Those who uh, were victorious over the beast himself. They were given harps and were told to sing a new song, and they sang together. And that is why Paul ends up that section with singing, praising God for fulfillment of his promises, glorifying God for his mercy to the Gentiles, glorifying God for his faithfulness to, the, to Israel and keeping his promise. The Old Testament kept saying, Jesus is coming, Jesus is coming. 420 times prophesied that Jesus is coming and Jesus came, fulfilled all of them. I have a friend in the Middle East who is a great Muslim scholar. I mean, he memorized the Quran. Lawyer, high position. And when the Lord brought him to himself, the first thing he did he memorized the New Testament. He was in a meeting with us in Switzerland a few years ago, and some of the guys and people have been Christians all their life, and they were kind of mesmerized at this guy, and I said, well, start at Matthew 23, 14. And it's like a tape recorder. He just starts at that verse and keeps going until they stop him. It's an amazing story, amazing story. He said the one thing that brought him to Christ is that he read in the Old Testament all the prophecies about Jesus. And then he read in the New Testament, every one of them was fulfilled. He said, there is no book like it. There is no book like it. And now he, of course, has been a great testimony for the kingdom work in the Middle East. Now, may the God of hope fill all of you with joy and peace as you trust in him so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit.